If you have a Bible, go to Mark chapter 4, starting in 30, verse 35. We have a big chunk of scripture to get through today. Um, and uh, I may have been a little ambitious, but this was God's plan. So this is where we're at. Um, Mark chapter 4, verse 35. And we're going to go all the way through Mark 5. I know. Buckle your seatbelts. Mark 4, 35. On that day, when evening, evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with, him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and he rebuked the wind and the sea and said to the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Chapter 5. Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now, a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned into the sea, in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And he was getting to the boat. The man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. And how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Verse 21. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians 
and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I, even, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of the blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And the disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing in around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child child's father and mother and those who were with him and went into where the child was and taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age and they were immediately overcome with amazement and he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. All right. Well, uh, let me start you off with a little story. When I was a kid, I used to play a lot of basketball. Every week, I would go to the park in Cuero, Texas, where I grew up. And me and my buddies, we would just, every week, we would hang out and we would play basketball. And I'll never forget the day that we showed up and there was a kid sitting off on the side on a bench by himself. And me being the good guy that I was, I said, hey, we should invite this kid to play with us, right? We need one more anyway. Let's invite him to be part of our crew. So, like seven of us walk up to this kid, and we ask him, hey, do you want to play basketball with us? And he was like, sure, I would love to play with you. So we asked him the natural question that any basketball player would ask another basketball player, which was, are you any good? To which he replied, he pointed at a spot on the court. I'll never forget this. (laughs) True story. He pointed at a spot on the, on the court, and he said, I can make five shots from that spot. And I was like, oh, no, because none of us can make a shot from that spot. Like, I'm like dude, I was like, dude, I just spent some social currency on ensuring that you got invited to play in this group, and then you're going to say that? Bro. Well, he got his little basketball, and because we were like, prove it. He got his little basketball, and he went on to not just make five shots in a row, but he made seven. And then we all said amongst ourselves, well, who then is this that can shoot a basketball so well? (laughs) And from that point forward, whatever he said about his skill set in basketball, we believed him, all right? We believed him. Now, why do I tell you that silly story? Because today we're going to see Jesus shoot the ball, all right? He's going to do some things that he has not done yet, and he's going to reveal 
something about himself that has not been as clear, okay? We are going to see Jesus absolutely stun, amaze, and drive fear into people's hearts, okay? We are going to see him shoot the ball. Now, let me catch us up to where we've been. We've been traveling through the book of Mark. We have seen Jesus declare his authority, authority over the physical world, authority over the spiritual world, authority even over sins. And last week, Tristan showed us that Jesus has come to build a kingdom, and I hope your home group was as eventful as ours. We had a very good discussion about this text. It's that text from last week, it's so rich that Jesus is bringing forth the kingdom. He's revealing, he's building his glory amongst all people. At the end of the text last week in verse 34, it says, he did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. That to the crowd, to those on the outside, he's not fully revealing who he is or his purposes, but for those that he has chosen to walk with him, And to be with him, he is revealing to them who he is. And today, we're going to see Jesus dial that idea up even more. That to this point, Jesus has been healing fevers. He's been casting out demons. But today, today we will see Jesus control the weather, bring freedom to a guy that's been in deep bondage. And then we're going to see Jesus raise someone from the dead. Okay? And in these moments, if you want three words, it's the power of Jesus, the purpose of Jesus, and the priority of Jesus. I did not intend for them all to start with P. It's just the way it worked out. So for you note-takers, that's a gift from the Lord, okay? Um, His purpose, or his power, his purpose, and his priority. So first, let's look at his power. In our first moment, Jesus and the disciples are going to head hop into a boat, and head to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Verse 35 in Mark 4, On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And as they are heading over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, a massive storm rolls in. Now, the Sea of Galilee was known for this. It was very common for this to happen because of its location. In the mountains between the Mediterranean Sea and the desert, it was common for these massive storms to just appear. And the storm that shows up is absolutely terrifying. Verse 37, it says a great windstorm arose. The waves were breaking into the boat. The boat was filling. Now keep in mind, the disciples are filled, several of them, are veteran fishermen. Okay, They would have seen many storms. But this storm terrifies them. They're scared that they are going to die. And where is Jesus while this is happening? He's asleep, but he was, verse 38, he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Jesus, do you not care that we are about to die? In that statement, it's this mixture of fear and anger, right? I'm terrified of this storm, and I'm angry at you as our leader for sleeping while this is happening. Therefore, that must mean that you don't care. We have to catch this, because this is a common thing for humanity to do. Like, I'd be willing to bet that we all have done this. The question the disciples are asking isn't so much a question as much as it is an accusation. Jesus, do you not have any compassion for us? 
Do you not care at all that this thing is happening? This bad thing is happening, Jesus, and it seems like you don't care. How many of you have ever been in that place with God? God, do you not see what's happening all around me? That must mean that you don't care, do you? You're asleep on the cushion. How is Jesus going to respond? Verse 39. He awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. In Greek, those are two words that both mean silence. Okay? The first one is in the present tense, meaning right now. And the second one is in the perfect tense, meaning continuing. So, essentially, he says to the wind and the waves, be quiet and stay quiet. Like, think about this. It's almost as if he is talking to the wind like it's a child. You ever done this with a child? Uh Uh-uh, stop! Don't you say another word, right? You ever done that? That's what Jesus does with nature. Stop, and I don't want to hear another word from you. This text says that not only does the sea obey, but it says there was a great calm. You ever been, you ever seen a storm in, on the ocean or on a lake, right? Even after that storm was gone, it would still be rough. There would still be waves going. I mean, this, but it says they were on still seas. There was a great calm. We get this idea that it was instant. I mean, if I'm there, I imagine silence. Nature's not saying a word. Disciples aren't saying a word because what you just saw, you don't have a category for it. Still sees. Verse 40, he said to them, Jesus probably breaks the silence. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Why does he say that to them? I think he's reminding them of who he is. He's God in the flesh. And he ends this moment with a question. It says they were filled with great fear. We'll talk about that in a minute. We'll circle back. But he, and, he said to one, and they said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The question is left hanging there so that the reader can ask themselves that question. Who is Jesus that even the wind and the sea obey him? And if you know your Bible, the Old Testament tells you exactly who controls the wind and the sea. God does that. Psalm 89, 8. It says, O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging, raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. In 2 Maccabees, uh, we won't go into the story, but there's an evil ruler named Antichus Epiphanes, Epi- uh, I think is how you say it. Uh, but he was a king who claimed to have the ability, the power to rule the sea. And they turn to him, and they look at him, and they say, hey, that's blasphemy. You can't say that because only God can rule the seas. And this idea isn't just limited to Scripture, but all throughout ancient cultures. In ancient ancient cultures and language, the sea was a symbol of unstoppable destruction. There's a famous story about a king named King Canute. He was a Danish king in the 11th century. He was in charge of all these smaller kings, uh, these smaller countries, and they were sucking up to him. They were basically um, trying to win his approval, calling him God. I don't know if anyone's ever heard this story, but it's one of my favorites. He, he walks up to the ocean. He looks at him, he says, am I God? And he walks up to the ocean and he goes, stop. And what do you think happened? The waves just kept coming. He's, he was telling them, he's like, only God can stop the sea. I'm not 
God. And here's the deal. What's more terrifying than the raging sea? Someone who has power over that very sea. Did you notice the disciples are scared of the ocean, but after Jesus calms the storm, how do they react? Here's what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that they were joyful. It doesn't say that Jesus calmed the sea and then they all celebrated. They didn't puff out their chests, or they didn't go, you know, when Jesus is in the boat, everything's okay. Jesus loves me. Yes, I know. How did they respond? They were filled with great fear because we're all scared of things we can't control. But you know what's more terrifying? The true holy one. The one with all power. The one with all authority. The one who speaks a word to the wind and the wind says, yes, sir. That's what's more terrifying. They don't know what to do at this point. They, they have no category. For Jesus, And they're in the boat with him, and that doesn't give them peace in this moment. It actually brings them fear. Most of us don't want control. Because here's what this means for us. He's Lord over our lives, whether we like it or not. He is Lord over us, and he has control of our lives, whether we like that or not. And so the question becomes, okay, if he is the true holy one, if he is the one that when I in my shame approach his throne, if I'm truly honest, I'm filled with fear because that highlights all my imperfections. If he has all authority and all power and I approach his throne and I see him as the true authority, get the spotlight off me because he's going to show me what I, who I really am. He's going to show me my true sin. If he has power like that, what is he going to do with that power when he comes to me in my shame and in my sin? That's what's scary. So our next story, we see the purpose of Jesus. We see the purpose of Jesus. When they get ashore, a man with an unclean spirit comes sprinting at Jesus. This man is absolutely broken. I mean, we won't read it all again, but listen to the description of this man. The text says that he was unclean. The word unclean means defiled, right? Defiled. Maybe an, another way you could say it is, is violated, right? It's not natural. Whether it was demon possession or disease, whatever's happening with this person, they're defiled, they're violated. It's not normal. It wasn't how they were intended to be. He, it says he lived among the tombs. He literally lives among the dead things. He's completely isolated from society. It says that no one could bind him anymore. Do you catch that? anymore. That, that means that maybe at one point he could be controlled. Maybe the people thought they could help him. They could save him. But whatever he has gotten into has become uncontrollable. And what does he do in the tombs? Verse 5, night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was crying out and cutting himself with stones. He literally spends his days crying out and cutting himself with stones. This guy's out of control. He's self-destructive. And here's what we need to catch. He is physically displaying the state of our soul without Christ. He's all of us. He sees Jesus on the shore, and he runs to him. They have a conversation. 
he tells Jesus that his name is Legion. A legion was the largest unit of the Roman army, and at full strength had 6,000 soldiers. So that doesn't mean necessarily that there were 6,000 demons in this guy, but it just communicates the idea that there were many, not just one. And then Jesus casts out the demons, casts the demons out of the man, and into a herd of pigs. So let's take a little side trail before we continue, right? Um, what's the deal with the pigs? Let's, you ever wondered that? Raise your hand. Okay, all right. I don't have all the answers for you, but I do have a few, okay? First thing you need to know about the pigs, the pigs were unclean. This was Gentile country, okay? They were unclean. And so you ever wondered why the pigs? Well, the, the pigs were unclean too. So um, Jesus, that is why he allows that to happen. It's because these were not uh, clean, uh, purified according to Jewish ritual and Jewish law pigs. These were unclean pigs. So he's not violating anything by casting the demons into the pigs. So other, let me say a couple other things. Um, first, you see the ultimate aim of the demonic world with what they do to the pigs. They kill them all. And if Jesus isn't going to let them destroy this man, then they will settle for the pigs. Right? Second, there are many who believe, and I tend to agree with them, that the pigs are the picture, are a picture of the final fate of the demonic world. Okay? Jesus is demonstrating in this moment what is to come. In Matthew's account of the story, the demons asked Jesus, hey, have you come to torment us before the appointed time? It tells us a couple things, right? That the demons know that there is an appointed time that they will be judged and punished. So it's a recognition by the demons that one of Satan's strongholds, the spirit world, is being invaded by Jesus and overpowered by Jesus. And so they say, have you come to destroy us before the appointed time? Right? And so this moment, it's a demonstration of what's coming. Revelation 20.10 says, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So Jesus is declaring to the demonic world, your end is coming. Your end is coming. Your stronghold will not remain. So yes, I will cast you out, and then you will fall into the lake. And he allows them to die in that sea. It's a declaration of his authority over the spiritual world, authority over the demons, and it's a proclamation, I think, that, hey, your end is coming. Yes, your appointed time is coming. So that's the side track. But what's the main point of this moment? Word begins to spread about what happened, and everyone comes out to see Jesus. It says they came to see Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind. That Jesus, in all of his power, in all of his authority, what does he do with that power and authority? He comes to bring freedom and peace to the defiled and to the shame. He brings this guy's dignity back. That's why it's worded like that. He, he brings this guy's dignity back. He brings freedom to this guy's life that he had given up on long ago, ago. And he has all the power. He is God in the flesh. There is no one like him, but he did not come to abuse that power. He came to bring freedom. His purpose is to bring peace and freedom to our dead souls. He literally finds people crying out in the night and brings their hope back. Now, I'm wondering if any of us in here might have this train of thought. 
Well, Colton, I've tried that. I've tried that. I feel defiled. I feel violated. I feel out of control. I feel like I have chains on me and I don't know what to do. And I have cried out to him. I've cried out to him. I've asked him for help and he hasn't done anything. Anybody felt like that before? Some of you read this story and all you can think is, well, good for him, but that's not me. That didn't happen for me. Been there, done that, Jesus was silent. Or Jesus is silent for you right now. And so you're like, good for him, but this is just a story to you. It does not resonate in your heart. Before we answer, tackle that, we need to look at the priority of Jesus. And so if that's you, stay with us. The people of the Gerasenes, they asked Jesus to leave, partly because they blamed him for killing their pigs, um, but also because they were scared of him. The guy who was possessed by legion probably terrified the people in that city. So what's more terrifying than that guy? Someone who can control him. And by the way, did you notice that this guy asked if he could leave and, and be with Jesus? How cool is that? Right? He says, hey, I want to follow you. And you know what's cooler? Jesus tells him no. And what does he do with this guy? He commissions him. He says, go. Go tell about what I've done. All the way back in Mark chapter 5, Jesus is commissioning people, telling them to go. I love that. He tells them no, and I just think that's cool. And so when he gets to the other side, another man comes running up to Jesus, and he falls on his knees, a guy named Jairus. So everyone is falling on their knees in front of Jesus today. You got crazy, naked, demon-possessed guy, and now you have the ruler of the synagogue, prestigious, religious, wealthy. And he begs Jesus, he says in verse 23, imploring him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she, so that she may be made well and live. Now I want you to put yourself in Jairus' shoes on this moment. I mean, there aren't maybe more tragic words in the English language. Your little daughter is at the point of death. My little daughter is at the point of death. So be Jairus in this moment. I mean, what timing, right? This guy just landed on your shore. The healer, the guy I've been hearing stories about, my daughter is dying. He says, please come help me. And Jesus answers him. He says, and it says, and it went with him. He went with him. The famous healer is going to heal my daughter. Everything's going to be okay. And verse 24 says, a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. Jairus would have been well known in this town, and you combine that with Jesus being a celebrity at this point in, that minute, in his ministry, and that results into everyone wanting to see what's about to happen. And if you read, when we read it, you could feel the tension in this story, right? Like, this is a tense story. There's a little girl that is dying right now with every minute of her life, and Jesus has showed up at exactly the right time. They're on their way to heal her, to save her life. There's a crowd all around them. Anticipation had been through the roof. Everyone is wondering, is he going to get there in time? Is he going to get there in time? I mean, I had to imagine the Jairus and the disciples in the front, move, make a path, get out of the way, right? Just chaos. And then all of a sudden, you get a woman who touches Jesus. And she had an illness, and she had lived with it for 12 years. 12 years. No doctor could heal her. And so she thinks, if I can just touch him, 
I'll be healed. If I could just touch even his garments, I will be made well. So she touches him, she's healed, and it says, Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? Be sure and catch what just happened. Jesus is hurrying towards a little girl who is dying, her dad probably leading the way, and Jesus just stops. He just stops. The disciples, who have no idea what's going on, they tell him, hey, why are you asking that question? Right? You see the crowds passing around you. They're all around you. Of course people are going to touch you. But Jesus won't let this go. He will not let it go. Verse 32, he looked around to see who had done it. He had perceived in himself, the text says, that power had gone out. So he's not going to stop until he finds this person. If you're Jairus in this moment, what are you thinking? Who cares, Jesus? Who cares who touched you? Can we go now? My daughter's dying. Finally, the woman comes forward. We don't know how long this took, by the way. And, but she comes forward, and, and everyone has to wait and watch this conversation happen. Did you catch that, too? Like, remember, there's chaos probably happening around them. And, and everyone has to stop and wait for this conversation to happen between Jesus and the woman. It says, the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear, trembling, and fell down before him, and told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Now, let's think about this. Her problem was serious, right? A discharge of blood would have been at minimum uncomfortable, maybe embarrassing. But more than that, it would have made her unclean. Unclean. It would have made her defiled. She would have been alienated from society. Did you notice that it it said that she had suffered under many physicians? I don't know what that means. Maybe you do, but I don't know what that means. But it's tragic. It's absolutely tragic. But here's the deal. It's a tragic suffering that had gone on for 12 years. It could have waited another hour, right? It could have waited another hour. I mean, what Jesus just did, if that was today and he was a doctor, it'd be considered malpractice. If I showed up at the hospital, my wife was dying, and I'd come in there and say, hey, my wife's dying, I need a doctor. That doctor started following me, and then your little four-year-old kid had a little boo-boo on his arm, and the doctor stopped and said, oh, you want a sticker? You want smiley faces or dinosaurs? I'd be like, let's go. What are you doing? My wife is dying. That's essentially what Jesus does. And you know what's interesting? Nobody wanted this conversation. Nobody. Nobody wanted this conversation with the bleeding woman. The disciples don't want it. Jairus sure doesn't want it. Not even the bleeding woman wants this moment. She just wanted to touch him and get out of there. The last thing that she wanted was for the attention to be put on her. Nobody wants this moment but Jesus. So what is Jesus doing here? I think he's teaching everyone in this moment two important truths about who he is and how he operates. First, to the disciples, to Jairus, and to the crowd. He is saying, I will not be hurried. I will not be hurried. I will accomplish my work according to my timing. I will accomplish my work according to my timing. Second, to the woman, he is saying, your physical healing is not what will ultimately give you complete healing. But it's because of your faith that you will find a holistic healing. He says, your daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace 
and be healed of your disease. It's almost like the healed of your disease, it's just an afterthought. The real gift here is that faith has brought her peace. Jairus' people come and they say, hey, your daughter's gone. She's dead. Don't even bother the teacher anymore, which gives us the impression that he was bothering her. But now they tell him, just stop. What's done is done. And how do you feel if you're Jairus in this moment? But overhearing, verse 36, but overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. So let's go back to what I said earlier. For those of you who you have felt the pain and suffering in life, you've asked God for help, the all-powerful one, the holy one. You've asked him for help, and help has not come. Please hear this. Sometimes God will make us wait. Sometimes God will make us wait. And you can take a deep breath on that because that is a hard pill to swallow. Sometimes God will make us wait because he will not be hurried. He will not be hurried. He will accomplish his will on his times. And here's the deal. His plan is always better. His plan is always better than your plans. Whatever you think you need, whatever think your circumstances need for you to be healed or happy, his plan is better. I mean, just think about these moments, right? He, he makes Jairus wait until it seems that all hope is gone. And he tells Jairus, hey, do not fear, only believe. Keep trusting me. That's what he's saying. Keep trusting me. Move towards me in faith. The bleeding woman just wanted to touch and run. She just wants the bleeding to stop. But what she got was a face-to-face conversation with God himself. That's better. Jairus just wanted some sickness healed from his daughter. What's he about to see? Let's read it. Verse 37. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The, girl, the child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, man, be Jairus in this moment. He said to her, Talitha kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. So what's Jesus' priority? Jesus, time and time again, will prioritize his work according to his sovereign plan. He will not be hurried He will not conform to our plans, and we should be thankful for that. That's good, because his plan is better. His plan is better. He has all power. All things are under his control. His purpose is to bring us freedom and peace. That it's it's in sitting under the Holy One with all worship, proclaiming all glory, we find our peace, our joy, our hope. But he will accomplish his work in his timing. His priority, his priority is that he would move forward in this world according to his timing. So let me ask you, do you really trust him? Do you really trust him? And I know that phrase has been thrown around in the church you know, well, you just got to trust God. Like, okay, what does that mean? 
I would just say, man, like, no, really, do, do you really trust him? Do you really, do you really trust that his plan is better? Are you willing to fall at his feet and say, I have faith that you are in control. I have, I have faith that all of this is for your glory and my good. I have faith that your plan is better. Like, are you willing to stake your career on trusting God? Are you willing to stake your family's life? On tr- are you willing to stake your future on trusting God? I think if we are, then we will find something better than just the fixing of circumstances. We will find true hope and satisfaction in our worship. True hope and joy when we think about our family, when we think about the future. Man, to sit at the feet of Jesus and say, I surrender it all. I give it to you. And then to patiently wait for his work. Patiently wait for his timing. I believe that if we do that, we will see the unbelievable work of God. And it probably won't be as we expected it to be. But it will be better than what we thought it would be.